It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today, I'm speaking with Laura Putnam. And am I pronouncing your last name right? You are. Perfect. Okay, good. There's so many ways to pronounce a name. <laughs> and <laughs> it's not my uh, strong suit, actually, to get it right. But it's interesting. Even the desire to get somebody's name right feels like it, it ties somewhat into our conversation today about perhaps like how we want to be professional and how other people perceive us, how we feel like we fit in, what our strengths and weaknesses are in a professional environment. And your focus is on wellness in the workplace, which I find really fascinating on a number of levels. Before we started recording, I was sharing with you how part of me feels a bit out of the loop on that subject because I am a independent contractor, freelancer. I mostly work for myself. I have clients and many of my clients have a team around them. So I get a peek into that environment. Some of my clients have teams that I collaborate with. And so it feels a little bit like the traditional workplace. But for the most part, I have a lot of agency. I have flexibility. I have a lot of freedom and choices and how I work, when I work, what work I do. And I developed that over a long period of time because I didn't actually feel that comfortable in a more traditional work environment. I've worked retail, I've worked in kind of some corporate environments, and I've done a lot in the creative fields given my past in the film industry but I was in offices in the film industry that felt quite corporate, even though they were based on creativity and designed to entertain people. There was still that dynamic of the corporate environment that I did not feel great in. And maybe that's because <laughs> I, well, I could go on and on about all the reasons, but I think this idea around getting things right and fitting in comes up. Like the simple things of, did I say someone's name right? And how do I look to them? How do I show up? Do they perceive me as professional and effective? Are some of the things that I've struggled with in my professional career. And Laura, I'd love to start off our conversation to hear about the common things that you hear from people in terms of their struggles, their mental health-related struggles, whether that's self-esteem or maybe it's a more clinical mental health challenge that they have. And it also, of course, could be physical too. The physical side of wellness plays a big role in how we feel at work. So what are you seeing in the past year or so? And how has that kind of been influenced by current events like the pandemic? Well, I think we all had this moment in which the pandemic became real for us. So for me, it was when I went to the grocery store and there was no toilet paper. <laughs> I was like, holy cow, this is actually really happening and this is really weird. 
or it may have been when the NBA shut down, or it may have been when Tom Hanks tested positive, or it may have been a bigger thing like the day that my kids were sent home from school or the morning that I woke up and I couldn't smell my coffee or when I lost my husband, perhaps. And I'm not saying that that happened to me, but just the pandemic has impacted all of us. And for some of us, it was a minor inconvenience. And in fact, for some of us, it was a ticket to more freedom and it was a really positive experience. And for others, it represented the greatest loss that you could possibly have. And so while the pandemic has been universal in terms of it impacting all of us, it has impacted each of us so incredibly differently. And now we're all kind of trying to come to grips with that, the fallout from the pandemic and all that came with it. Because as we all recall, it wasn't just the pandemic, but recall how once the shutdown started happening, then just a couple months later, we had the George Floyd murder. So we had this giant awakening around systemic racism. And so we've kind of had this just this confluence of events, all kinds of changes in the economy. So I often characterize the second act of the pandemic and all that came with it as the toll on our mental health. And so now what I see in the workplaces that I'm working with is really each of these workplaces coming to grips with that in terms of how they help their people, not only on a physical level, but also on a mental level, as well as all the other dimensions of well-being, things like financial well-being or career well-being or things like social well-being or things like community well-being. So all of those multiple dimensions of well-being have really been impacted. And in some ways, they've actually been impacted in a positive way. And in other ways, they've been impacted in a very negative way. So, for example, one of the things that people who are working in office environments, they've gotten to work from home. So just like people like you and me who get the benefit of working for ourselves, where we have that level of autonomy, suddenly all these office workers began working remotely and they got a taste of freedom. (laughs) They got a taste of having flexibility in where they work and when they work and how they work. They got the flexibility of being able to show up for work in their pajama bottoms or their boxer bottoms. I mean, I saw this really funny statistic that like half of people who are working remotely were not even putting on their pants. So if you're having like a Zoom call or a meetings call, there's a 50-50 chance (laughs) that the other person on the other side doesn't have their pants on. So that has been a really big boon to our well-being on an emotional level, having that freedom. However, on the flip side, I think that we've really suffered in terms of our social connections. And not only are we having those kinds of fewer of those incidental kinds of interactions that we have when we're in the workplace, But we've also gotten out of the habit of interacting with others. We've kind of become a little bit more insular. All that time of the shutdown, I think, really broke us of the habit of 
engaging with other people. And so not surprisingly, rates of loneliness have gone way up and they've continued to stay pretty high. And so this is what I mean by this remote working slash hybrid working and all that's the pandemic and all that's come with it and kind of where we are today has had both positive as well as negative effects. And just one final thing about this, I think from my vantage point in terms of a positive that has come with the pandemic or a silver lining that has come with it is the real recognition upon with every leader and with every organization that, oh yeah, well-being and health actually matter. (laughs) They matter not only to people, but they also matter to the bottom line. And as we all experience firsthand, if people are not well, then neither is the business. So many great points there. I'll start off by saying I am typically one of those people that does not care that much about what I'm wearing below the camera line. For example, right now, I'm still kind of in my pajamas. Like, I'll switch it up. And sometimes I think like, okay, is there a chance? Am I going to stand up for some reason? If not, then I'll just wear whatever I want in a different top. (laughs) And it's, it's so funny. I brought back memories of when I first started working for myself back in... I quit my last full-time job in 2010, I believe it was, and continued to work part-time in retail for a few years after that. But I have this distinct memory of what it was like to start essentially working from home. And I didn't know how to do it. So I have all this compassion for people that 10 years later were going through that same thing of like, what do I do? Am I allowed to sleep in? Like, can I start the day whenever? All of these thoughts that come up And it's really interesting because over the years, I've thought a lot about things like sleep. Like now I can start my day truly, well, almost entirely whenever I want. Occasionally I have a client that needs to meet earlier. I've scheduled everything, including the podcast, based around my preferred sleep and wake times, which are a little bit different. And part of the reason I struggled in more traditional jobs is I'm not a morning person. So getting up at 7 a.m., really challenging for me, needing to get in, get dressed and in the car. And especially 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of remote work happening. And so all of my jobs were in person and I had to go commute, get somewhere, live in Los Angeles with the traffic. Even when I lived in San Francisco, like yourself, it was like the public transportation, all of this stuff and the stress that came along with that, feeling like I had to conform to the way of doing things despite the impact on my mental health. And actually, when I finally left my last retail job and my last kind of more structured work at the same time, I had a moment of massive anxiety and I was experiencing what I think was like a panic attack because my employer sent me the schedule and in retail for anyone that's worked it or is working in that field, a lot of times you don't get to choose your schedule. And that was the case at that job. And they sent me my schedule one day and I i guess it was a panic attack. I just was feeling all these intense emotions, feeling true panic, feeling out of control. And that led me to leave that job because I thought this is not working for me. I cannot continue to lose sleep literally over this job. Even though I liked the job, even though it was scary to leave it, I had to prioritize my 
well-being, or I had perhaps even the privilege to do that. I mean, you mentioned some really important things too, Laura, about things like systematic or systems in general. Like not everybody has the privilege to be able to leave a job, even if it impacts their well-being. So that's something I would love to hear from you as a follow-up is how can everybody prioritize their well-being? Or is that truly a privilege? Yeah. I mean, I think that the first thing is to recognize that as much as the pursuit of better health and well-being has been framed up as an individual pursuit and that all we have to do is take, quote, personal responsibility for our health and well-being and then we'll become our best selves. When in fact, that really runs counter to what the actual reality is. And my experience is when I just share with people the myriad of ways that we are in fact the environment and the culture that we are in actually works against our pursuit of well-being. And furthermore, that there are systems within these environments and these cultures that are benefiting some more than others, making the pursuit of better health and well-being better, easier for some and a lot harder, if not impossible, for others. I have found that when I just call that out for people, that people feel a an enormous sense of relief because suddenly they say, oh gosh, this is something much bigger than me being unmotivated or lazy or not prioritizing this. It's a much, much bigger picture. And so the term that I've been using, I actually teamed up with a DEI expert, Karen Catlin, and author of Better Allies. And she and I teamed up together and talked about this idea of wellness privilege. Do you have wellness privilege? And looking across these six domains of well-being, whether it's physical, emotional, social, career, financial, community, the six domains that I just mentioned, in what ways do you have privilege? So for example, we hear the tip a lot that get out into nature to improve your health and well-being. It's easy. Well, consider that 100 million Americans don't have easy access to decent green spaces. Or speaking to something that you were bringing up at the beginning about, do I get to come to work as my, quote, full authentic self? And I have seen lots of white middle-aged men in leadership positions who get to show up as their quirky, weird selves. And there's an enormous amount of bandwidth for them to do that. And everybody else is having to mask a lot of parts of themselves. And I think that that becomes even more complicated when we factor in things like gender and race and sexual identity. I mean, the list goes on around how much do we actually get that privilege to show up as our full authentic selves. And so just like we have been studying the state of the American dream, and in particular, I've been really fascinated with Raj Chetty's work I think we need to be looking at the state of access to well-being. And so there is a clear connection between our conversations that we're having around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and well-being. And as long as we continue to frame up health and well-being as simply an individual pursuit rather than a collective one, in my view, we're not really going to make a change. And so that's why I'm so inspired by the work that I'm doing, which is how to, okay, given that, how do we leverage every workplace so that 
every person who works, whether it's in-person or virtual, and particularly if they're working for an organization, that they are healthier because of it. Or dropping down a level, everyone is healthier, more enabled to be their best self because of the team that they're part of and because of their boss. And so similar to you, I had a moment with my last kind of real job, which was I was a teacher in which I left because I quit. I had actually signed my contract to come back the following year. And then I, after I left school for the year, I went into this deep depression and I was walking around this beautiful lake with my sister. And my sister turns to me and she, and she goes, you know, you don't have to go back. And I said, well, I've already signed the contract. And she said, well, you can break the contract. <laughs> and so I did. And, and in my case, I left my boss. I didn't leave my job. I left the principal and I had had this very specific situation in which I had had to make an appointment for my eyes. I had to get this really scary appointment to check to see, believe it or not, if I was at, at risk of going blind. And so the latest appointment that I could make, which was during the week, was one o'clock in the afternoon. So I had to think through, okay, how do I do this? And I carefully thought through, okay, the best day to do this is on Wednesday afternoon because this is when we have our professional development day. This way, my the charter school where I'm working won't have to pay to bring in a sub. My students won't miss out on any class time. So I went through this whole very thoughtful process. And then when I submitted my the little requisite form that I had to submit to get permission, it came back to me a month later saying denied. And even when I spoke to the principal about this, I'm like, wait a minute, let me tell you my whole thought process that went into this. And he said, I still stand by my decision. And then I said, I went on to say, okay, so let me get this straight. If I had lied and I had simply called in sick that morning, would I have had my pay docked? And he said, no. So that was the moment in which I was like, I left my boss, not my job. And so the point being, there is an opportunity here for us to be able to begin taking more of a meaningful, collective, outside-in kind of approach to bettering our health and well-being. And one of the ways that we can do that is by leveraging every workplace, by empowering every leader, every manager to reposition themselves as multipliers of well-being. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, multipliers of well-being, but it's really powerful. And you're touching upon so many important things. It really lit me up to hear you talk about, I guess, the lack of equality and or addressing the fact that not everybody is in the same position. And that was part of the reason I asked that question to you, because I used to believe that, oh, if you're not happy, you can just switch jobs. If you're not happy, just quit. I saw you also recently did an article about quitting jobs. And I realized more recently, in the past three years, when I started learning how I could become a better ally or an ally to begin with, I'm not sure if I could have really considered myself one. I didn't know that much about racism and I wasn't able to identify it within myself or even fully observe my privilege until the past three years when it was really brought to the forefront for many of us. And I think one of those was that I just didn't realize that not everybody could quit a job if if it was impacting their well-being. Not everybody can, for their based on their circumstances, turn down work 
I mean, it, there's so many situations in which somebody might feel like they have to stay, even if it's detrimental to themselves. This whole notion, do you get to quit your job? Absolutely. That is a privilege. And the article that you're referencing was a terrific article in the New York Times written by Christina Karen, a journalist there. And it's called, Should You Quit Your Job? And she asked for my input on speaking to this question from a well-being perspective. And But one of the things that I really appreciated uh, what she did in this article is that she did acknowledge that this in and of itself is a privilege to be able to quit your job. And what can you do if you're not able to quit your job? So I think that that is a starting point around better addressing well-being is just to start to ask some very real questions. And one of the real questions that I've been asking of leaders, and this takes us to a related topic, which is mental health in the workplace. And how do we tackle the taboo topic of mental health in the workplace? And I tell the story of how there was one naval ship that in one week had three suicides. And this was on the heels of the military and particularly the Navy having invested heavily in both mental health as well as suicide prevention. Now, this same story eerily repeated itself in April of 2022, whereby yet again, one ship, one week, three suicides. And so there was a psychiatrist who was interviewed for the 2019 New York Times article that covered this incident in which he suggested, you know, might it be better (laughs) for us to tackle this topic of mental health in the workplace and, and to really address this topic of suicide prevention by addressing the environment itself, as opposed to just identifying the individuals who are, quote, at risk and connecting them with the resources that they need, which is the standard protocol, the standard approach to addressing this taboo topic of mental health in the workplace. We treat it as an individual issue. We're just going to identify those individuals and connect them with the resources as opposed to acknowledging, oh my gosh, maybe the workplace itself, maybe the environment itself, one in which there's toxicity tolerated, one in which there's unreasonable time pressure, maybe the workplace itself is driving some of these mental health issues and even suicides. And so one of the questions that I now ask of leaders and managers that I work with, because again, they are the key influencers in the workplace. I ask them the very real question, which is, is your workplace a naval ship in the making? Is your workplace a naval ship in the making? Is your team a naval ship in the making? That is, is the workplace itself generating some serious mental health issues such as anxiety, depression, and even suicide? Wow. I mean, what an important question to ask. And I wonder if it's now more so than ever. Do you think the increases, kind of going back to where we started of just the evolution, is it that mental health is becoming more of an issue or is that we're finally not seeing it as taboo? Was this always around us or has it gotten worse? 
I think it's both. I mean, the statistics show that measurably it's gotten worse. So for example, they're in terms of our mental health, rates of loneliness have gone up, as I spoke about. More people are reporting that they're resorting to substance abuse because of stress and other, more people are reporting high levels of anxiety. We're seeing this, that for example, there was a Boston University study that came out showing that rates of depression have tripled since the onset of the pandemic. This is also happening internationally where we're seeing millions of added cases of depressive disorder as well as anxiety disorder. So this is very, very, very real. And at the same time, I think that we are becoming more aware of mental health. And so there is more room to begin to be able to talk about it. And people want to be able to talk about it. So, for example, there was a monster intelligence survey that came out showing that 91% of millennials surveyed reported that they want to be able to have conversations about mental health with their boss. Now, there still is a disconnect because yet another survey that came out from Paychex right around the same time shows that over half of employees are afraid to talk about their mental health with their boss. So that's a really bad combination. And I would say that as much as mental health is becoming, quote, normalized, I would say that it's A, it still is a taboo topic in the workplace. And B, there are still the vestiges of these outdated notions that when we come to work, we, quote, check our emotions at the door. As if we can even do that. And that instead, hopefully someday we'll start to move in the direction of somebody like Chip Conley. When he was CEO of Joie de Vivre, which is a boutique hotel chain here in California, he actually nicknamed himself the chief emotions officer as a way to signal to everyone like, yes, bring your full authentic self to work, which includes your emotions. Let's bring those forward and let's talk about it. Let's create an environment here in which emotions are part and parcel, a part of our workday. I would love to hear any insight you have about how, from both sides, like how can the manager or boss, anyone not more on the employer side, support that and become the chief emotions officer? And how can the employee develop the comfort level with that. I imagine there's a lot of synergy that happens, like both have to happen, but maybe one has to happen before the other can happen at the same time, right? Like, because it depends on your personality. It depends on the workplace, right? If you're a very confident, forward person, doesn't have a lot of risk, maybe you have privilege on whatever level, then maybe you can just approach your manager, your boss, your employer, and say, I want to be able to talk about these things. But my guess is most people do not fall into that category, and thus it probably is the manager or the boss that needs to lead with that first. Is is that true? And how do both people cultivate that environment? Well, Well, there's two things here. One is just feeling like you can talk about it. And does that come from what is signaled across the organization, what's normalized across the organization? So it's more of an outside in issue. And what am I comfortable with as an individual? Because some individuals, they really don't want to talk about their mental health. But that's just one piece of it, because there's the other piece, which is uncovering the root causes which that are driving the issues in the first place. So yeah, it's great if somebody feels comfortable talking about how they feel so much pressure at work. They're having to do the work of three when they're at work. I mean, let's take healthcare workers, for example. They can talk about it, but nothing's done about those issues that are driving it in the first place. So it's really 
both of those things that need to happen. So my suggestions, starting with leaders and managers, number one is to, I call it flood the beach. So what do I mean by that? So there's this fab, wonderful story of like two people who are walking on the beach and there's all these starfish that have washed up on the shore. And if these starfish stay on the beach, they're going to dry out and die. And so as they're walking, one of them keeps picking up a starfish, throwing it back into the water. And finally, the other one turns and says, why are you doing that? Because there are all these starfish over here. And so then the first one, picks up another starfish, throws it back in the water and says, well, for that one starfish, I just made all the difference in the world. Okay, that's an incredibly inspiring story. But I would say that that has been our approach to dealing with mental health in the workplace is that we kind of pick up one starfish at a time and we throw them back in the water, which is great for that one starfish. But what about all the other starfish? So this is why I think we have to shift our mindset to like, okay, what can we systematically do to flood the beach so that there are no starfish that are left out to dry? Then the second thing that leaders need to be thinking about doing is to uncover the root causes, such as is there issues like work overload? Is there things like perceptions of unfairness? And how do we do this? Is there huge discrepancies in what people are getting paid within the same organization? Things like that. Are we going to address some of those key issues? And then those senior leaders need to start to model and they need to start to show some vulnerability and they need to start to develop some policies that start to address some of these root causes. Then the managers, every manager needs to be empowered to become that multiplier of well-being that I spoke about earlier. And the three key steps for every manager to become a multiplier of well-being, as opposed to being a gatekeeper, inadvertently getting in the way of their team members' engagement with their well-being, is to do, lead by example, albeit perfectly, imperfectly rather, speak to talk about well-being and to talk about it in a very human and personal way. And then three is to create, to create some team-based systems that start to normalize well-being within the context of the team. And then finally, the last thing that we can all do, no matter where we are positioned within the organization, is to awaken compassion, awaken compassion. And If there is ever a time that each of us, no matter where we are positioned, need to be making the extra added effort to start to notice the people around us, how are you doing as a human being, not just as an employee? We can all be doing that. We can do that extra added effort to give people, give that person a hug or to notice that somebody's feeling left out. Even if the meeting is happening virtually, we know when somebody's feeling left out to notice if one person never gets to have their voice shared and one person, another person is always dominating the conversation. These are the kinds of small interpersonal moves that we can make to awaken compassion across the workplace. And we might think that those little things don't matter, but yes, they do matter a lot. It is so incredibly helpful to hear it framed that way. It feels empowering. and it feels hopeful to me. And it reminded me of a couple of resources that I'm curious if you've heard about. One is I'm very into tech software and AI. And I just saw an AI tool that was designed to support with the ladder, given many of us 
myself included, are spending a lot of time online, having meetings and things like that if you're working from home. And there's this app or this AI tool called Mitra. And it's designed for companies to be able to reconnect. That's their tagline. And what they do is create leadership recommendations and build stronger team connection. And the algorithm actually analyzes the meeting to see how much time people are getting, how they're connecting with one another. It gives all this data. And I'm really intrigued by things like that because it feels so easy to let something fall through the crack, like to not notice that somebody might not be contributing much, might be really quiet. And you might think, oh, it's just them. Like it's going back to that individual mentality of like, oh, they'll figure it out or just let them be themselves. But your beautiful point of how the leaders in these team settings need to set that environment and notice things because not everybody is going to notice it about themselves or feel confident sharing it. So that tool I thought was a really neat way to look at things if you're struggling with it. The other was a lot of the things that you've shared today reminded me of a book I just started reading. Are you familiar with Tara McMullen? I'm not, but I'm going to check that out. It's such a great book and you're so in alignment with the things that she's saying. I'm only about maybe a sixth of the way through the book. It's called What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we approach goal setting. And it's centered around the goals, but I've been reading it to better understand well-being in a work environment. And one of the things that she really touches upon is that individualist perspective of, or a mindset of like, you have to figure it out for yourself. You have to be resilient. And that actually can create issues with mental health because people start to feel like they have to change in order to fit in, in order to be successful, in order to reach their goals, in order to keep their job. People feel a lot of not enoughness, a lot of comparison traps. And I'm curious if you see that coming up in your work too, if people are feeling lonely, which was another side effect of the individualist culture of people feeling like, well, since I'm in charge of myself, I have to do it all on my own and I can't collaborate or I can't reach out to other people. And I wonder if that's also connected to the anxiety, depression, as well as burnout, which is another keyword. Maybe people feeling like because they're so responsible for themselves, they have to take on more work. Does any of this ring true in your work and research? I mean, our, yes, yes. Our culture is built around this individualistic mindset and this kind of this idea of individual freedom is perhaps, and the rugged individual is so much a part of being American and part of our identity. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me when I first arrived in Ghana, so I spent seven months living and working in a small village in Ghana in West Africa. And one of the very first questions they asked me when I arrived was what day of the week I was born. And at the time I had no idea, and I don't know if you know what day of the week you're born, but they have a tradition there that you are given your day of the week name when you are born. And you go by that name for two weeks and then you're not given a Christian name, an individual name until you are two weeks old. 
But what ends up happening is that a lot of people go by their day of the week name. So that effectively means there are seven names for girls and women and seven names for boys and men, which is unfathomable for us. But the name there represents more about how you are integrated into the community as opposed to how you stand out as an individual. And so it was such a profound mind shift for me that they needed to know what day of the week I was born to give me my name. So my name was Efwa because I'm a Friday baby. And they actually called me Efwa Lala. But just how much I had not even thought about a name being a way to really symbolize that what matters most is that we are together as part of a community. And so now I think that what we, again, something that kind of an aha from the pandemic is that if there's anything that we have learned from the pandemic, it is that my health and my well-being matters to you and yours matters to me. There simply is no me without you, and the only way forward is together. And so whether we're talking about getting through the pandemic or we're talking about how do we rise above all of these mental health issues that are coming front and center, this has to be perceived as a collective issue as opposed to an individual one. Uh, I couldn't agree more. It's so refreshing to talk about this. And actually, the chapter I just finished reading talked about the rugged individualist, and there's a little history on it from one of the presidents. And it just pointed out also some of the political things and how much that's impacted us. And I want to say it was like Hoover. Yeah, Herbert Hoover, who coined the phrase rugged individualism. And it just kind of gets into how that was about 100 years ago, I think. Is that right? Anyways, it's been a long time that America is centered around that. And America influences a lot of other countries due to the way that we trade goods and how the finances work. So the politics are impacting things. The financial structure impacts the world. And it's so interesting to hear perspectives about how other cultures are doing things differently and how we can bring that to those of us who are in the United States or other or different countries outside of that. I love that story. And it also reminds me of something that you had said you wanted to talk about today that I was very interested in, which was around human trafficking. And when we speak about a community coming together to make a difference, I felt like that is a subject matter that I don't know that much about, but it really hits me to the core hearing about it. So Laura, Mm -hmm. you were sharing with me about a specific company, was it? Or was it just the line of work that they were in that was related to human trafficking? Can you reshare that with me and share that with the audience? Yeah, happy to talk about that. And and I just want to first address what you were starting to say in the first part of this question, this idea of going global. This is actually step 10 in my book, Workplace Wellness That Works, is how much we can learn by crossing borders to see what other parts of the world do that in many cases are longstanding wisdom that we're having to relearn and that this kind of Western industrialized way of how we live is in fact contrary to our well-being. And I think also applying a multicultural lens is something that is really important. So I want to just notate that really quickly and, and something again that I that I write about in Workplace Wellness That Works. 
But this whole issue around human trafficking was something that I was recently awakened to. I was speaking at an event that was hosted by the Pipeline Construction Association. So this is a consortium of companies that are in the business of laying these pipelines. And one of the things that was a huge awakening for me that I was not aware of is that apparently these pipeline construction sites are targets for human trafficking sites, as in this is where the organizers of these human trafficking, they will basically set up shop. And because the people who are working at these sites are often men, and they are often away from home for months at a time, and they're isolated. And so this is like a prime target for these traffickers. And so what I was so heartened by was the fact that the Pipeline Construction Association is fully acknowledging what's happening here, and they are taking action. They're training all of their people around what's happening, and they are activating them to take action, to intervene, to know the signs of what to look for. If you see that RV set up over there, that may well be a human trafficking site, for example. And so they're really empowering them to really step in and stop this from occurring. But I just had no idea just how prevalent this is. This is apparently even something that you might see when you go to a truck stop. This is another place that one of the people there was saying, you know, if you see like a mobile home kind of set up there, that may well be one of these trafficking sites. And so I think all of us need to become more aware of this crucial issue and just where it shows up and it shows up in places that we might not imagine. Thank you for touching upon that. It's pointing out the ignorance that I have and also gives me chills thinking about it because it's something sometimes that can be in plain sight, but unless we're educated on it, we don't notice or we ignore, we don't know how to take action on it. And it ties into this idea of that me versus we, whereas it It's easy, sometimes tempting, or maybe it feels all we can do is take care of ourselves. I think when our bandwidth is limited, we don't feel like we can support others. We can even start to learn how to support others. And I think that's another big reason why we have to work on our well-being is because then it can expand our capacity to help others too. It's, It's like the cliche idea around the oxygen mask, right? Like even if we want to help others, we have to start by helping ourselves. And because work is such a big part of many of our lives, we have to consider that if we're spending most of our week in some work capacity, then we can't afford to ignore our well-being in that place. It is the place where most adults are spending the vast majority of their waking hours. So this is, again, what it speaks to why it is so important for us to really reposition the workplace is not just a place that we work, but it's also a place where we can get well. <laughs> and I think alongside the oxygen mask analogy, I think works really well, particularly if you are a person of influence. 
And so this is something that I'm always sharing with the managers that I train. I've now trained over 15,000 managers and leaders through a workshop called Managers on the Move, as well as through an online course through LinkedIn Learning called Managers as Multipliers of Wellbeing that I delivered. But the message is that, you know, while investing in your own self-care may feel selfish, or putting on your own oxygen mask first may feel selfish, it is in fact one of the most giving things that you can do because it signals to your team members that it is okay for them to do the same. You're giving permission to them. But I would take it one step beyond that, which is I think that while we each need to be that role model for one another, and there is a well-documented phenomenon known as the social contagion effect, meaning that my personal behaviors never happen in isolation, Rather, they create a ripple effect for better or for worse in which they influence not only my friends, but my friends' friends and even my friends' friends' friends. And it goes out from there. But if you are in a position of influence, your ripple effect is only greater. But I would say that even beyond that, we need to be thinking about reframing things like self-care, invest in your self-care to team care, team care. And they're just simply particularly when we're talking about our mental health, our emotional well-being, our social well-being, there we can't do this alone. And in fact, one of the longest standing studies to date is a Harvard study. It's an adult development Harvard study. And this has been running for 80 years, for more than 80 years, in which they've been studying Harvard grads and looking at kind of their life. And how long do they live? How well do they live? What are those key factors? And the number one factor, hands down, was social connections. And so each of us needs to be asking ourselves the question, am I loved and am I loving well? And this, again, really moves us away from this, am I just loving myself, (laughs) to no, am I loving myself in the context of others? Am I loving others as well? And are they loving me? And that is the greatest predictor of not only longevity, but also quality of life. And what a pivot that is to put love at the center of work too, because I feel like a lot of people believe that they need to, speaking of cutting off emotions, like you mentioned earlier, like when they go into the workplace, it's not about love. It's not about connection. It's about every man for himself or in order to be a good team member, it starts with you as the individual, which still makes sense and fits into all of this. But What could change in a team environment if people did feel love from one another? Well, I was just going to say, there's so many statistics that speak to exactly what you're talking about, which is just so ironic. A lot of these leaders and managers in particular, they feel like, you know, I'm not going to work to make friends. (laughs) But here's the reality. If you have not just a friend, but a best friend at work, you are seven times more likely to be highly engaged in your work. Or if you feel a sense of trust, if there's trust within their team, then that team is 12 times more likely to be highly engaged in their work. Or a study that was conducted out of Google in which they found what are the teams that do best? They are the teams that have a high level of psychological safety. So those teams in which 
There's relative shared airtime. There's not just that one person who's dominating the conversation all the time. And also it's a team in which the team members are kind of checking in with with one another and they're paying attention to their social cues, making sure that everybody feels safe, psychologically safe. They feel safe to take interpersonal risks within the context of the team where everybody feels heard, where everybody feels like that they're part of the team as opposed to just a few. And so what the issue becomes is it's less about individual performance and how an individual does just in a little vacuum. And it's more about how we work together. So those high performing teams often don't have, quote, the highest performers. It's more about those mediocre performers, if you will, They just happen to work really, really well together. So it's less about the ideal individual, more about the ideal team, and even about the ideal workplace. Couldn't agree more. And even though it is about the team, considering that individuals are listening to this episode, I would love to know before we wrap up, what is one thing that the individual could do after listening to this episode if they want to see these changes happening in their workplace? Where's the starting point for them? Oh, wow. That is such a great question. So again, getting back to my book, Workplace Wellness That Works, the first suggestion that I make, the first of this 10 steps to transform your organization, to infuse more vitality and well-being into your organization is to shift your mindset from expert to agent of change. So you need to channel your inner Oprah and think about what would Oprah do to influence people. I don't know anybody who has had more influence, particularly around health and well-being, frankly, than Oprah Winfrey. So yeah, you need to go out there and get the expertise, read the science, but even more importantly, it's about how do you start a movement of well-being and Everybody can do that. So one of my favorite examples of this, I went in to Kimpton. I was asked to deliver a talk about, um, I have a topic called Born to Move, Told to Sit. So all these ways that, yes, movement is one of the best things we can do for our bodies and our brains. We are born to move, right? And yet, if you think about it, we're told to sit. Every corner you turn. So the first thing that you hear when you come into somebody's home or office, have a seat. Everything in our culture revolves around our chairs. It's the first thing that we teach our kids, sit and be still. And so we've effectively created this massive biological cultural mismatch. We're, again, biologically programmed to move, but we are effectively culturally mandated to sit. So I think that that's a big aha for every individual, kind of getting us back to some of the things that we were talking about at the beginning is like just recognizing how much our environment and our culture is literally conspiring against the healthy choice, such as being more active. It's not just about me as an individual deciding I'm going to get more active, but oh, by the way, even given that, so it's like, I'm going to shift my internal dialogue from, I'm going to take personal responsibility for my health and well-being to, okay, given the world that I live in and given the organization that I work for, And given the team that I'm on and the boss that I work for, now how do I become my best self? So I think about those things that are working in my favor. Oh, I have a boss that really never sends late night emails, for example. So that makes it easier for me to turn off my devices at night. So I can leverage that in my 
favor. Or I have a boss that always runs at lunch. So I know it's okay for me to get up from my desk and do the same thing, be more active. I feel like I have more permission. The point being, we can just start from that place of like, okay, what are those currents that are working in my favor versus those currents that are working against me? How do I leverage the ones that are working in my favor? How do I kind of navigate around the ones that are working against me and acknowledge those? And then how do I in turn become an agent of change? So I was starting to tell this story about what happened at Kimpton. So I'd given this whole talk about how sitting is the new smoking. I talked about this, you know, we hear about this a lot about how sitting is new smoking. And so one of the participants, she took it upon herself to set up a little standing station for herself in the company kitchen. And so all these people would come in and they're like, what are you doing? And she was like, She's like, city's the new smoking. I'm setting up a standing station for myself here. And so then lo and behold, other her peers started to do the same thing. They started to kind of like construct their own little stand-up station. And then this kind of like started rippling outwards. And eventually the company adopted a policy that if you wanted a stand-up desk, you could get a stand-up desk. So this is a great example of how somebody who's not necessarily a manager or a leader still can start a movement of well-being. And that all comes down to that one tip of how each of us can shift our mindset from expert to agent of change. Yes. That is phenomenal, and I couldn't think of a better way to wrap up this episode because it's so inspiring and empowering, and it's an actionable thing. And that doesn't mean that it's easy. It might take some brainstorming, trial and error. It takes a lot of, I guess, confidence building to even start there. But knowing that you can do that and hearing that beautiful example, so wonderful. It also triggers in my head like, oh, yeah. Standing. I'm, I can't wait to stand up after we wrap up recording. I'm going to go stand up and stretch. And like, even if you work for yourself, these things can be hard and they're great reminders. And I keep thinking about how I can influence people around me. Again, even though I'm not in a traditional work environment, I still can ha- be an agent of change. I can talk to my friends about these things. I can share this podcast episode. I can share your book. I can start giving people some ideas for themselves and imagine just like that starfish example you gave to that beautiful visual story of how much of a difference you can make if you just shift your actions a little bit in your perspective. It can really go such a long way for yourself and others. And Laura, you have just delivered so many words of wisdom and done it in such a, a approachable way, really. And you're considering the barriers, the obstacles people have and helping them work around them. And that's just phenomenal. I'm deeply grateful that you have that element of inclusivity because I've realized recently that, especially when it comes to work, there's a lack of awareness around the privilege, as I mentioned. And I was contributing to that in the past and I no longer want to be part of that. I want to be aware of all these different circumstances. So I just find that incredibly valuable about your work and your knowledge and that you include that in how you speak. So thank you for that and everything you've shared today. 
For the listener, I will link to Laura's book, of course, and her website. So there's two places to get it. One is right below the podcast player in the description. There'll be some links there as a starting point. If you want the full version of it with all the links, including the transcript in a blog post style with quotable moments, anything you might want to share or remind yourself of, that is all in the show notes at wellevator.com. That's W E L L. EVATR.com. You'll find it all in the episode show notes. Thank you so much again, Laura. This has just been absolutely delightful. And what a great way for me to continue on the day of work I have for me after this recording. Just lots to consider as uh, what how I can be an agent of change. So thank you on a personal level too. Well, Whitney, I think you already are being an agent of change. And thank you so much for having me as the guest. I loved our conversation. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 